My name is Dominic, if you're a guest here, um, whether you're online or here in the room. Uh, and so grateful that we get to, to gather this morning to worship Jesus and connect in community. Um, one of the things that I do every year at the end of a, a calendar year is just spend a little time and sit and pray about uh, what I believe God would have for us in the coming year. And so over the last few months, I've sat um, thinking and praying about 2023. Uh, and I've shared some of this with the staff team and you got to experience a little bit last, last week. Um, but each year I just ask the Lord, like, Hey, would you give me a couple words or a couple statements or even pictures of what you believe or what I have a sense of God, your heart is for our community. And so at the end of this last year, there was a few words and I'll share two of them with you today. Um, first one was blessing. And the second one was maturity. Uh, if you're here last week, uh, you participated in one of those first steps of blessing. And I, I just want to take a minute and say thank you. Uh, thank you last week for engaging and embracing the mess or the messiness of a family gathering. And thank you for sharing the different ways that uh, you were blessed by that activity that we did. I, I got phone calls, I got texts, I got pictures of the ways that different members of our body engaged in blessing their family members. And that was a blessing to me just to see the faithfulness, the obedience, the engagement, the grace of God uh, made available to us through um, just the faith of stepping into that. So thank you um, for engaging in blessing. And that's something we're going to continue to think about, talk about, and learn about this year is what does it look like for us to understand that we've been blessed by the Lord to be a blessing to others, um, moving in that outward posture because we understand what's going on in this posture. And the second uh, is maturity. And as I think about maturity, I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, God's in inviting us to, to mature this year. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of save all the different areas for, for later. But what I'll say this morning is this, uh, as we were sitting out and mapping out uh, the, the, this winter and spring season, thinking about um, what we're going to look at and study together in the word uh, leading up to Easter, the, the thought was, was this that all throughout scripture in the New Testament, there is, even as that Dallas Willard book points towards, uh, this call towards maturity and it's maturity into Christ. We don't have to really guess who or what we're invited to mature into. It's Jesus, right? We're called to mature and become like Christ, to learn how to allow the very life of Christ to take residence within my body so that the life of Christ is displayed in this world. There'll be uniquenesses and differences and nuances to that between all of us because we're uniquely created by God. And yet the goal in a sense is this maturation into Christ for all of us. And so we're thinking about if, if the maturity is Christ and where, where does scripture speak to that? I mean, all throughout, but the letters uh, that Paul wrote to the churches and even the letter of revelation, believe it or not, has a lot to say about maturity and words for the church. And so we're going to spend some time looking at that. And one of the things I love about the letters is that in them, Paul, as he writes, before he tells us the things that we ought to do to display the maturity, he first always tells us who we are in Christ so that we have an understanding of, 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 of proper order. Does that make sense? It's always a, an encouragement and a reminder of here's who you are in Christ. So now go act and live this out by the grace of Christ and the empowerment of the spirit in your life. But I would say even prior to that is, a, is another step. That if Christ is the one who we, who we are to become like, if he is the goal, if he's the one we are to mature to become more like, then we got to take some really good, close and hard looks at Jesus first. Does that make sense to everybody? Who is Christ? What have we been given in Christ? What are we to do now with this life of Christ that's within us? And so actually to kick us off before we get to that next series that we're going to do, all that is an intro to say the series that we're going to do now for the next few weeks is a series that I'm just simply calling Jesus. What we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to look at four different aspects of who Christ is 
as clearly shown to us in scripture. Um, we're, our larger family that we are a part of is called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And actually when uh, the Alliance was founded uh, as a family of churches, now you know, called a denomination, uh, A.B. Simpson was the founder and he, he kind of distilled it this way. He said, Jesus only is our savior, our sanctifier, our healer, and our coming king. That really the, the goal in maturation, and if we're going to mature into Christ and become who he's called us to be individually and as a body of Christ, there's a handful of key beliefs that are displayed in scripture about who Christ is. And he's our savior. He's our sanctifier. He's our healer and our coming king. And I know some of those words, as we look at them, we're going, oh, what do you mean by that? Well, guess what? Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about it. We're going to journey through that together and find out. But this morning, we're going to start with Jesus as our savior. And, and A.B. Simpson, he had called that the, the fourfold gospel that those are four key elements of the gospel and understanding them and living into the fullness of them is understanding that Jesus is again, savior, sanctifier, healer, coming King. Hey, I do have screen here, but I don't have screen there. Just if, if that's possible. And so this morning I want to jump in and, and look and talk about Jesus as, as our savior. Okay. And to do that, I want to look at the, the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible, open it up. If not, it'll be on your screen there. And um, we're going to start in, in chapter three uh, and we're going to look at verses 21 to 26. I want to jump in together. Um, with that. Can we do that? All right, let's do this. So Paul writes this uh, in Romans chapter three, starting in verse 21. He says this, he says, but now in the present day, in his day and in our day, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that paragraph that I just read is full of a lot of deep theological concepts and unfortunately, a lot of difficult language. Uh, as a result, it's really easy to read those six, seven verses and actually not understand a word of what you just read. So my goal and my heart today is that we would break that down and distill it and clarify it so that we have a better understanding of, of what it is that it means that Jesus is our savior. Uh, because the reality is a lot of biblical scholars actually would say that that paragraph right there is one of the most important paragraphs in all of the scripture that God has given us because it speaks to and answers two really key questions. It answers, why did Jesus have to die? And what really happened on the cross? See, if you think about it, we just went through uh, the Christmas season, right? The incarnation. And if you read the gospels, the gospels tell you very, very clearly why Jesus came as a baby. It was in fulfillment of all the prophecies that have been made over hundreds and thousands of years and that Christ was the fulfillment of that. And if you read through the gospels, you'll see his life and how he goes and he fulfills then all these promises. But what you actually don't get if you just were to read the gospels is you don't really get the answer to those two questions. Why did he have to die? We, we get the answer why he, had to, he was born, but not necessarily why he had to die or nor why what actually happened on the cross. We get the whole story and the picture of the cross, but we don't get the full understanding just in the gospels alone what happened on the cross. But fortunately, God, by his spirit, has given us the whole canon of scripture, and we have all of it. And we get the understanding of why he had to come through the Old Testament. We get the gospels, which show the life and the reality of this kingdom that he came to bear. And then after that, we have the rest of the New Testament that begins to really unpack for us key answers to those, to those two things, those two questions. 
And it shows and points for us that he is the savior, the sanctifier, the healer, the coming king. And this morning, again, we're talking about him as the king. So in order to understand, or excuse me, as, as our savior. And so in order to understand this, um, again, there's about five or six key words here that I want to unpack in order to help us understand and remember Jesus only is our savior. And so starting with this in verse 21, again, Paul, Paul writes this and he talks about the law. And so I want to talk about the law for a moment because it's key that we, we understand that before we can understand the rest of it. And when Paul speaks about the law, Paul's talking about the moral law given to the nation of Israel through Moses. Uh, the centerpiece of that law, we would all probably understand and know and go is the Ten Commandments, right? He's familiar with that, familiar with the law given. Uh, but in the beginning of chapter three, uh, excuse me, actually in, in chapter two first, what Paul does a really great job of, we don't have time to look at it all today, what Paul does a great job in, in Romans chapter two of doing is showing us how the nation of Israel utterly failed, unfortunately, to keep the law that, that they were given. And Paul goes through that and expounding on the ways that they failed, ultimately to point to this picture, that the failure of God's people, though, does not mean the failure of God. The failure of God's people to keep their promises or to keep their end of the covenant doesn't mean that God failed to keep his. Rather, it's quite to the contrary, that the failure of the people to keep the covenant and to keep the commandments actually shows more so the character of God, which he's going to continue to build this argument. And what happened is God's people dishonored him. They broke his heart. They blasphemed or made mockery of him before the world. And yet, even in spite of that, God was still faithful. And that's what Paul begins to build in chapter three, prior to what we looked at. And it's Paul's talking about this. He points out again that Israel's unfaithfulness is not undoing the faithfulness of God, nor does Israel's unfaithfulness undo the plan of redemption that God has. And so what he does is he establishes this truth that, that all humanity are under the power of sin. Israel is under the power of sin, unfortunately, and the rest of humanity as well are under the power of sin, apart from God doing something on their behalf. You guys tracking with me? Is that clear? And so I want to read for you uh, kind of this poetic distillment or poetic compilation of what Paul writes in Romans chapter three uh, in verses 10 to, to 18, as he again brings this point and highlights it, because it's key for us to understand this as he's talking about the law and righteousness and where, where does our righteousness actually comes from? So he says this in verses 10 through 18, he says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one has understanding. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And again, this is a distillment of phrases uh, written between Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah. Ultimately, again, pointing this picture of the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what do we do about that? If, if God's people can't even fulfill the law, then, then, then what do we do? So Paul brings this concept and this reality then of, of God's righteousness. And that's where he starts it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. So let's talk about righteousness, right? Because that's, that's a Christian word that we probably all say we've heard, but could you tell me what it means? It's, it might be hard. So I want to talk about that, okay? So the righteousness of God. Now the righteousness of God, some of your translations, they might actually say the righteousness from God. Either way, this phrase is expressed eight times in the book of Romans, and it appears first in Romans, 16, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I want to read that because actually understanding the way it's first used in this book is key to us understanding how it's used in the rest of the book, and in particular in chapter 3 here. So Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in the righteousness of God, excuse me, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's key for our understanding, but that actually didn't define the word righteousness anymore. And so here, here's, here's the actual definition of the word righteousness. The righteousness of God is the divine approval of God. The righteousness of God is the divine approval of God. So if we were to go back then and read verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God, or now the divine approval of God has been manifest apart from the law. See, before in the Old Testament system and according to the law, in order to receive the divine approval of God, again, it was following these laws and these rules and these regulations and these ceremonies. And again, what Paul is building this case is that there's a new way of salvation that God has brought and manifest and revealed to us through the coming of Christ. And so if you and I are seeking after the righteousness of God, the divine approval of God, it's not based upon what we have to do because reality is we couldn't even keep the things that people were given to do. There's a new way, there's a new avenue, a new freedom that's been opened up to us to experience the divine approval of God. Another key aspect of this righteousness, and you guys just bear with me this morning. I know I don't often teach through like giving you these terms, but this is really important this morning is that there's three elements and aspects to the righteousness of God as, as Paul's talking about it here. There's righteousness of God, meaning the righteousness that God himself has. Okay, you do have it. And ultimately what Paul is saying and what Paul has built up again through all of what he wrote about in chapter two in the beginning of chapter three is setting this stage to understand that God alone is righteous and God alone is holy. Meaning God alone is divine and he's just in all that he does. God himself has self-divinity and he has self-approval. He's self-justified and he doesn't need to answer to anyone. He's creator of all things. And he's loving and he's good and he's kind and he's merciful and he's generous. And he's a God of blessing in all that he does. He doesn't need to answer to anyone. He's God. And we are the created beings. They're invited into relationship with him. And so how, how does that work? Because we all know and understand that we've, we've, got, we've got these flaws. We've got these things. We've got ways in which our hearts do not align with the heart of God. And we go towards our own broken way. We have an inclination towards that. That again was what Paul was building there. But there's this righteousness of God that's being considered here. The second piece of it is the righteousness that is required of humans. Uh, if you remember uh, Leviticus chapter 11:44, when God is talking to the people and he's establishing more depth of the law, he, he says there, he says, be holy for I am holy. Again, I, I'm holy. I'm set apart. I'm, I'm perfectly justified in all I do. And I'm calling you to be like that as well. Why? Because you're my people called to represent me in this world. Jesus comes along and Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter five, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, this call for perfection. Why? Because of what we were talking about earlier, who God is, what he has done for us establishes who we are in Christ and who we are in Christ then establishes the way we ought to comport ourselves or act in this world. Make sense? You connecting with me? And so Paul, again, Paul is building all of this. There's this holy and righteous God who's calling us to be like him. Well, if we can't even do that through keeping the law, if, if Israel couldn't do that, what good are we? Or how, you know what I mean? Like, what do we have? And so Paul, again, is breaking all this down and establishing it. And then, but now here's the thing. There's a third element of this word righteousness of God or righteousness from God. It's not just the righteousness that God has. It's not just righteousness that is required of humans. But the third one is this. And this is the good news, you guys. It's the righteousness that God gives to those who can never earn it on their own. The approval of God for those who are longing and seeking it, that God freely gives for those who can never earn it or attain it on their own. And that, in that one little verse, that's ultimately what Paul is setting the foundation for 
and helps us to then understand more fully how we can experience Jesus as our Savior. You guys track with me at all? Is any of this good? Okay. All right. Let's, let's, and not that I'm doing a good job, but good news, right? That this is what God is doing here in this. Second word then. Okay. Here we go. Ready? The second word that comes to, comes to bear here that, again, we often use as Christians that we need to understand that Paul talks about in verse 24. Paul writes this and he says, or in verse 23, again, he's established for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Two key words there, justif- justified and redemption. I want to talk about justified. Justified is actually a legal word. It's interesting. As you unpack the gospel in these words, there's ways in which each of these words has association and understanding, not just in a spiritual sense, but have like a real world undergirding and foundation that the people would have understood. And justified was was a legal word that they would have understood. Justified is, is a verb that comes from the noun righteous. And this is how these two are linked. And it's used 30 times in the book of Romans. So that's why we got to understand it. And it means to declare a person righteous or not guilty or simply in good standing. To be justified is to be in good standing. And what Paul is saying here as he developed and built all of that is that God in his love, in his goodness, in his justice, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his grace, again, he created you and I, he created all humanity. And out of love, he has invited and called us to be in relationship with him. And yet because of the fall, because of sin, there was this thing that ruptured that relationship. And so what do we do? By the grace of God, we no longer have to work and keep ceremonies and keep laws and keep these things to be in good standing with God the way that Israel had to. But now we, in this day, in this time, Paul is saying, because of the coming of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, there's a new grace that has been extended to the world. And if you desire good standing with God, you don't have to earn it anymore. It's freely given to you by a righteous and good God. It's freely given to those who look upon Christ, the one who is the embodiment, the manifestation of this good standing before God. And Paul is saying, you're justified when Jesus is your savior. Not these works, not these things, nothing, Jesus alone. And he connects that again to another key term. They are justified by his grace, given good standing by it as a gift of grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, redemption, excuse me, justification declares that we're not guilty. I want to talk to you now about what redemption does. Justification, remember, was a legal word. Redemption is actually a commercial or an economic word. It means to buy back through a payment of a price. It was, it was commonly used to describe a transaction to free someone actually from slavery back in the day. Back in the, the, old, the old Testament system and even in the New Testament times, people could end up into slavery if they couldn't pay a debt or they would end up in slavery because of war and, and, and what was going on. They would take people into slavery. And the only way that you could free someone or get their rights back was to pay a redemption. And so what Paul is saying here is that that redemption has been paid. The world, because of the sin, because of the the fall back in, in, in Genesis, there's been a way in which we no longer were under just the love and the care and the provision of God solely, but sin had entered in and taken hold of, even taken ownership of the world and all of its inhabitants. But God wasn't going to leave it like that. God himself was going to pay that redemption price to win us back and to free us from the slavery of sin. And if justification was getting rid of our guilt, the other beautiful half of that is that redemption is the removal of our shame. Why? Because redemption is the restoring of dignity and the removing of shame. 
And you and I need both of those. I need not only be de-justified to have right standing with God and him to declare, I am no longer guilty, but I am free of the penalty of sin. But I also need to be set free from the shame that comes of having been one who was enslaved. Enslaved to sin and its practices and all of its work within my life. The reason why you and I hide the reason why there's rupture, the reason why that we go into the quiet, into the crevices when we know we've done something that transgresses someone else or God in relationship is because of that reality of shame. The, uh, the enemy comes in, the devil comes and lies. And instead of just saying, you, you, you did something in this moment, the devil tries to lie and say, you are something. And what you are is bad. What you are is a slave to this thing. You're never going to be free. You're never. And Jesus, Paul is saying here is that by the grace of God, the gift, we are justified by his grace, set free from the penalty. You're no longer guilty, but we're also redeemed through Jesus Christ. There's a new story, a new tape that can play within my heart and in my mind. And it's a story of dignity and of the removal of my shame because of the work of Jesus when Jesus is my savior. I don't know about you, but this, this for me is good. Like I, was, I was enjoying this this week. And Paul goes on then in verse 25, and he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Anybody know what propitiation means? I cheated this week. I looked it up. I'll tell you. Propitiation is this. Uh, some, in some of your translations, by the way, instead of the word propitiation, they might have there the word uh, sacrifice of atonement or atone, atoning sacrifice, right? But yeah, propitiation, what it does is it describes, um, it describes the offerings or sacrifices made to appease the wrath of an offended God, okay? And where this term comes from is there's two places. One is that it comes from uh, the background and the culture of, of the Greeks in the day. See, the Greeks had all kinds of gods, right? We, we see in the different letters, Paul talking and describing them. The God that you're searching for, the unknown God, I'll describe who he is. But they had all kinds of gods. They're pantheistic. And what they would do or what they would have to do if they transgressed or offended one of their gods because they weren't holy, they would have to come and offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was considered an atoning sacrifice or a propitiation. And so they would, they would give that sacrifice and the belief would be that, that that appeased or set at ease the anger of this God towards the transgression, towards the sin that they've created. And then they were all good and they'd go about their day and go about their week and do all their things. This word for us in, 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 um, in the New Testament, it's, it's actually only used really in one other place. And it's a very powerful word, so we're going to come back to that. But here's why. Because Paul connects this word propitiation to another interesting word, divine forbearance. Paul wrote this in 25. He said, again, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice uh, through his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Okay, what are you, Paul, what are you talking about? What is he talking about? And this is the other key place where we get the understanding of what propitiation actually is. See, back in the day, after the Passover, which was when God set the people free from slavery, right? You guys remember that story? That the people were enslaved in Egypt and they were in shame for all those years. And what God said was, I'm going to come this, this next evening and I'm going to pass over this whole land. But anyone that has taken the blood of a perfect and spotless lamb and smeared it over their, their doorpost, I will pass over that home and there will, there will be no death. But anyone who has not trusted this provision of safety, this provision of salvation through the smearing of blood on your doorpost, everyone in there will be saved and, and you'll be set out. And God kept his word and it happened. And God led them across the, the, the sea. 
and into the promised land. And when they got there, that's when God established, again, the, the commandments. And God established these other ceremonies in which they were, they were to keep. And one of the ceremonies that God established for them was the rites that the high priest every year would have to take the blood of a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, and they would kill it out in the courtyard. They would take it and they would carry it in, or they'd carry the blood, not the dead animal. They would carry the blood into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it onto what was called the mercy seat, which was on top of or covering um, the Ark of the Covenant which was a representation of, of God's love, God's presence, God's power to the people. And that high priest would every single year and at other times throughout the year have to go ahead and take that blood and it would go into the Holy Host and they would sprinkle it there on that mercy seat or on that atonement seat. And it would be an atonement for the sins of the people for the year. But what Paul is bringing very clearly to us now as he talks about God's divine forbearance and passing over former sins was the reality that the author of Hebrews talks about for five chapters there is that those sins or those atoning sacrifices, they actually weren't, didn't forgive the people of their sins. What they did is it was God's divine forbearance. And just as the blood over the doorpost in the Passover was pointing forward to another blood that would come and be shed someday for the true forgiveness of sins. This sprinkling of blood too was not an actual absolution really of those sins. What it was, was again, pointing forward to a day when another blood would be shed that actually would be the absolution and the absolving of all human sin, removing both guilt and shame, setting us free and calling us into life, restoring us into wholeness, which is what the word salvation actually means. And so Paul is saying here, again, this was to show God's righteousness, God's justice, God's goodness, God's self-approval in his redemptive plan that was not undone and can never be undone by Israel's failure, nor any mistake that you or I ever make. This was all set up in God's divine forbearance as he passed over those former sins. Why? Because it was to show right now, he says in verse 26, the righteousness at the present time so that we might be just so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You guys, why did Jesus have to die and what really happened on the cross? <laughs> Jesus had to die because of the righteousness and the holiness of God and our inability to keep up with that in simple terms. But what did he accomplish on the cross? So you remember when I talked about propitiation? That in the propitiation and in that atoning sacrifice, the people themselves used to have to bring their own atoning sacrifice and do the work. They had to do all of that. What God has done and basically what Paul is distilling down here is saying for us, all, you have been justified, you have been redeemed, you have been set free from your guilt and your shame, and there has been already a propitiation made for you. And you know who supplied that sacrifice? The holy God who is requiring it radically different than any other religious system out there. Every single one that says you work, you appease, you bring the good works, you bring the sacrifice, you bring the stuff, and, 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 and it's all false. And God is saying, no, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who loves you. I'm the one who knows you. And I want to be in relationship with you so bad that I actually will provide the atoning sacrifice for you. And his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ is your salvation, church. And what's hard about this, at least for me, is that we live in a culture that is all about self-improvement. <laughs> we live in a culture that's all about self-representation. 
that it's all about works. It's all about merits. It's all about the things that I can achieve, the ways that I can promote with crowdfunding from my friends, but all these things that I need to do to make myself look, feel, and be good enough in the eyes of myself in the mirror, the people around me, and even in front of God. And I deal with the wrestling of that ingrained in the culture around me. And that the beauty then of, of, of all that we're looking at is this. That's the good news. That's the gospel is that all of that lie, God comes out of his, in, in his love, he comes and he puts on flesh he, in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He lives and he dies for us. He resurrects us and he comes and he says to us, if you would look on me in faith, all of that stuff you can be set free from. It's good news, y'all. It's good news. And so when Jesus is, Jesus alone is my savior, here's what I experience. When Jesus is my, my savior, I know that I've been justified or made righteous in God's eyes. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of him. When Jesus is my savior, I'm forgiven. When Jesus is my savior, my guilt is gone. When Jesus is my savior, I have peace with God. When Jesus is my savior, I'm free from shame. When Jesus is my savior, I also have eternal life and inheritance that can never fade nor be stolen from me. When Jesus is my savior, I'm a new creation. Again, not because of anything what I've done, but because of the work of God's grace in my life. When Jesus is my savior, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate me from his love. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demon, nor future, nor path, and none of it. Nothing can separate me from the love of God when Jesus is my savior. Paul distilled it this way in, in the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says this, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This year, you guys, as I believe that Jesus is calling us to again, step into and understand the reality of the fullness of blessing we have as his covenant kids and to then go and share blessing as his kingdom representatives. And as I believe God is calling us into a greater maturity and understanding of this and sharing in it together, this is key and central what we're talking about today. That we understand that Jesus only is our Savior. You don't have to earn anything for it. I've said this before, and maybe you said, God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you. He's not mad at the world. God loves you, and God loves this world. We see brokenness, we see pain, we see war, we see hurt, we see injustice, we see all of these things, not because God is doing that, but it's because of the brokenness that has been brought into the world through sin. That's what sin does, is it ruptures, it breaks, it, it, it deforms, it decays ultimately to the point of death. And God sent his son, Jesus, into the world to be the one to undo the rupture. By grace, Christ has come to bring back and to put back together everything that's sin undone. Wholeness is ultimately, again, what the word salvation means. And in order for you and I to experience that, which we'll talk about more fully next week when we talk about Jesus as our sanctifier. But the first step is to understand that he's your salvation. And to understand and look at all these other ways in which I'm trying to save myself and be honest and go, it's actually not working. There is nothing else that, that saves me from the guilt that I want to get rid of. And in fact, when I do these things, it often just leads me more and more, more guilty. There's nothing that can free me from the shame that I feel. In fact, when I try to do those things to get rid of it, it actually leads me into greater and greater, greater shame. But when I enter into the light of the grace of God and put my faith, ultimately, which means just trusting in Jesus as my provi the provision, 
for my salvation, for my source of right standing with God. There's a freedom that I can experience. And this morning, you guys, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. And this morning, the communion, if you don't have one, I'd invite you to get one, or I think the greeters will, will pass them out to you. But as we do this this morning, um, this is exactly what we're celebrating. This is exactly what this cup and this piece of room wafer this is, is, is it's it's remembering and it's declaring this truth that i'm saying as i take this that jesus i believe that you alone are, are my savior that you alone are, are my, my my salvation and everything else i'm going to learn how to trust you above all else to be my savior to in that in this is is the receiving of the grace of god now if you're here this morning and you already know jesus as your savior i, I invite you to 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 take this freely to take this joyfully to take this I mean, run running you know what i mean like yes and if you're here this morning and you've been on a journey maybe of trying to explore and discover who jesus is here's the thing i'm not going to tell you not to take this i want to invite you as well to take this but i want to invite you to consider something before you do that that as you take this again what you're declaring is jesus i, I trust you to be my savior See, Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 10, 8, 9, and, excuse me, 9 and 8 verses. He wrote this. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a simple, it's a simple confession. It's a simple ascent of understanding to say, I, I, I've tried a lot of different things to save me. Again, to alleviate my guilt, alleviate my shame, to work this way, to believe I got right standing with others and with God. But the scripture here, the grace, the good news is to say, no, it, it, it's a simple it's a simple statement of saying, no, I, I, I trust you, Jesus, to be the one who sets me free from all of that. I, say, I trust you to be the one who restores me into wholeness through the love of God. And so I'd invite you to consider to take this as well. And if you feel like you're in the spot to do it, that, that God's moving you in that direction, before you do it, to say a simple statement of saying, Jesus, I, I, I believe. I trust. I trust in, in your, your life. I trust in your death. I trust in your resurrection to be my source of salvation. And I'd love to talk with you more about that. Any of our staff team, friends around you, would, I'm sure would love to talk to you about that. But I want to lead us this morning in taking this, and then we're going to worship in response to it. Jesus, when he was here, um, before he went to the cross, the, the scripture tells us in the gospels that he sat with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was again saying, my, my body is that atoning sacrifice that you don't have to offer on your own, but God is providing it for you. And it says then that he took a cup and he blessed it as well. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, a new way of receiving the approval of God, right standing before God. And this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it. And he said, anytime you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so church this morning, as, as we worship out, I want to invite you to go ahead and do that to take time to, again, remember, confess, and profess Jesus as your only Savior, and then to take this. Let me pray, and we'll worship, and we'll go. Jesus, we, this morning, come before you, yeah, as, as your kids, freely by grace. We thank you, God, for the love that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for coming willingly and taking on our experience and our form as humanity, but doing it without sin so that you could be that atoning sacrifice. So you could be that perfect sacrifice that appeases 
the anger of God, not against us, but against the sin in the world. Jesus, thank you for setting us free from guilt. Thank you for setting us free from shame. Thank you for restoring our dignity and our humanity the way that God intended. Thank you for coming to set things right and to make us whole. Jesus, in faith, we trust in you and the work that you have done. Acknowledging this morning that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by anything that we've ever done or will ever have to do, because Jesus, you have already done it. So God, this morning, would you come, would you minister to your people as we take communion? Would you distill and ingrain and bring greater depth and maturity to our understanding of what it is that we're taking, what it is that you have done, and the depth of your love for us? Jesus, we profess this morning, you alone are our Savior. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.